If you would take your scriptures, turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew 4, we'll be reading verses 1 through 11. Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterwards he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning asking you to open our hearts to the words of your scripture. Help us to learn of our Lord Jesus Christ and his incarnation. Show us through his temptation how we can live our lives as a witness of all he has done for us. Fill our hearts with his truth. Grant unto us the truth of his word. We know there is no other way for us to grow than we study your word. Remove from our minds the worries of this life and open us to the message of your gospel. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. This sermon follows our message from December the 26th on the humiliation of our Lord. I told you I took these sermons from my conversations with Dr. George Sandor. Dr. Sandor received Christ as his Lord and Savior after many hours of, of conversation and discussion concerning Christ and the message of salvation he brought. This issue of Christ's incarnation was a really big step for Dr. Sandor, as it is for many people. How can God come down and enter his own creation? He can, as the sovereign Lord Almighty, do whatever pleases him. If he could create all you see, he could surely come into creation if he desired, and he did. He lowered himself to take on flesh and blood in order to do for his people what they could not do for themselves. Now trust, <clears throat> you will remember in our speaking of the humiliation of Christ in his birth and in life, we talked about how much he gave up to take on flesh and blood to become our mediator. This was the creator God. This was the second person of the triumph Godhead. And what did he do? He laid aside all of his glory in order to come into his own creation in a way that was common to all men. 
this morning, I want to look at his humiliation in his being tempted by Satan. The scriptures say in Hebrews 4.15, he was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. And Hebrews 2.18 says, he suffered being tempted. Please understand, this does not mean his being tempted as we are was in any way an indication that he suffered temptation from within his own soul as we do because of the corruption of our nature. This would be impossible for him because he had perfect holiness. It is said of us in James 1.4, every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. This is by no means true of Christ. Yet, from the scripture, there can be no doubt that he was tempted by Satan. It is shown that Satan was set loose on Christ on two different occasions. The first was, of course, at the beginning of his public ministry, and the other at the close of that ministry in the Garden of Gethsemane. This passage we just read from Matthew 4 gives us the account of the the first and the second is understood from John 14, 30. I will not speak with you much longer for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold on me. Satan is coming. He's coming to expose Christ. To do so along with his only sufferings right down to this last violent temptation. He's tempting Christ to deviate from his divinely given purpose. In the beginning, the devil tried to divert Christ from his mission through his wiles. At the end of Christ's life, Satan tries to turn him away from his purpose by fiery darts. This was, as it were, the hour of darkness. Here Christ faced the knowledge of the horrors of the cross and the terrible pain of God's wrath. This will cause, this all caused by the sin of others. You caused it. I caused it. We all caused it. Satan was there to point out how easy it would be to just simply refuse such unjust suffering. However, for Satan, it was a hopeless cause. Christ said, he has no hold on me. Satan had lost his battle even before it began. Christ had to suffer all of this as a part of his humiliation. He did it. He did it so that that you might be forgiven all of your sins and delivered from the power of Satan to the wonderful glory of the kingdom of heaven. This morning, we shall look at the temptation of Christ as it's given in Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11. First, we will compare it to the Luke 4 account and discuss the seeming contradictions between the two accounts. Next, we will look into the time of the temptation, and then we'll observe the temptations themselves. The account of Christ's temptation is found in both Matthew and Luke. There are some small differences in these two accounts. The enemies of the truth like to take these deviations and use them to say the Scripture is flawed. Let's look at these diversities and see if there's any reason to believe 
They are contradictions that detract from the truth of Scripture. In Matthew 4, 2, it says, When he had fasted 40 days, the tempter came to him. And over in Luke 4, 2, we read, He was 40 days tempted of the devil. Is there a real difference here? Was he tempted only at the end of the 40 days or throughout the whole of the 40 days? I don't believe there's any contradiction in this at all. It simply means, a it's just simply a difference in the way these two men wrote what they understood. Luke sees the whole period as a temptation, and it was. Matthew, on the other hand, skips right to the heart of the matter and says he was tempted and the matter concluded with the last temptation at the end of the 40 days. The devil tempted Christ throughout the stay in the wilderness, and at the end he comes to Jesus one last time to give it, you might say, his best shot. Matthew tells us this last attempt, and Luke fills in that it was a continuous time of temptation. We also hear Matthew say that the devil tempts Christ with these words. If you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. While Luke says, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Now, how many of you, I'm sure it's probably every one of us, have tried to relate an event to, to someone and have had somebody else trying to correct every little detail as you told the story? That sound familiar? That is what we have in these people who want to take expectation, take exception to every detail here. Luke was a man of Greek roots. Matthew was a Jew. It's common in Hebrew to use the plural of something to represent one thing or maybe one place. It was said of Jonah that he was gone down to the sides of the ship. What does that mean? He went down in the hole of the ship. In the Greek language, everything is, a, is very peculiar or very particular. It speaks very specifically about things. So, is there any real contradiction here? Satan may well have picked up one stone from among many laying around. Luke, being a good Greek scholar, reports this stone. While Matthew, being Hebrew, would say these stones. It is just a difference in how each man spoke. The point of what is meant is not harmed by either way. The last difference comes in the order of the temptations. Matthew places them in one order while Luke gives us a different order. Matthew places the temptation to throw himself from the temple before the temptation of the kingdom while Luke reverses the order. There's no contradiction here. The credit of a historian is in the facts he delivers, not in the order he delivers them, especially when nothing is changed by that order. The differences in the two accounts means absolutely nothing in regard to the lesson we should learn from it. That lesson is that Jesus Christ came into this world, luring himself, taking on flesh and blood in order to gain the forgiveness of his people. In order to do that, Christ had to submit himself to the temptations of Satan. Here the creator, the very one who made Satan, 
had to endure Satan's attempts to pervert his message, to pervert his mission, to change it. He had to humble himself and submit to the same things we face. That was what Christ came to do. When did this temptation take place? It happened right after his baptism as he was beginning his public ministry. He had just received the glorious testimony of the voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. It's it's after this that the word says, Then was he led into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. Mark says immediately, the Spirit drives him into the wilderness. Christ has come to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. That's the heart of the gospel. He came in to do for us what we couldn't do. He's facing the fury of a rebellious world on our behalf. So what do we learn from this temptation? We learn as children of God, being molded into the image of our Lord and Savior, we will be brought into conformity with him. That when we receive manifestations of his love, we're going to be called to exercise and test that love. Why? For the same reason he was tested. So that the truth of God's love can be strengthened and made plain in our hearts. You must also understand there's a reason in us that was not in Jesus Christ. We have the natural tendency to become proud and haughty when things are going really well for us. So in order to keep us from being prideful, God allows temptations to come along and and, and come against us, making it necessary that we fall back on him to overcome. We need God in our lives if we're going to overcome the temptations that come against us. Christ didn't have this particular need. But what does he do as he faces these temptations? This is very interesting. He falls back. What does he fall back on? He falls back on the Father, on his word, showing us the means by which we can defeat temptations. Here we learn through humiliation Christ suffered in taking on our afflictions. You can also see that Satan hates to have one of his of God's children blessed. Satan doesn't like that when we get blessed. So whenever God blesses his children, Satan's always there. He's always there to try and bring them down. You've experienced it, haven't you? Something good happens to you. You feel real good about it, and all of a sudden, here's this temptation. Here's this affliction coming upon you, trying to turn you away from your trust in God. So whenever God blesses his children, Satan's always there to bring them down. This is the way in which he shows his opposition to God. He shows it by attempting to rob God of the glory which he intended to bring to himself through his child's life. Satan does not seem to understand that God takes these things in the life of those he loves. Then he uses them to bring even more glory to his name. Satan thought he would destroy the work of Christ by hanging him on the cross. That was his goal, to get rid of Christ. But all the while, God had planned to use the cross as the means of the salvation for his people. This was all a part of Christ's humiliation. 
He came from heaven and a place of great glory to enter his creation. Then, to accomplish the wonder of salvation for a totally undeserving people. We didn't deserve a thing from Christ. Not one thing. We can clearly see that our Lord was tempted. He was tempted just as he entered his public ministry. Is this not the way it is with God's people? When you come to know Christ, when you want to begin serving him, that's when you face the greatest difficulties. It is God who allows these temptations to come. He does it that you might be tested, not because he needs to know your stamina. He does, but to show you your absolute need of his power to complete that task. He's showing you something. He's not learning anything from him. He already knows. He does it to prepare you for the greater difficulties that lie ahead. The scripture is full of accounts of this very thing. Moses, as he was called to lead the children of Israel, Elijah, as he faced Jezebel, Saul, as he became king, Jeremiah, as he was called to comfort a people he feared. In all cases, Satan offered them many excuses not to follow God's plan. You must always be aware that when God calls you, he will also provide all you need to accomplish the task he's given you. He doesn't call you and leave you out there with no help. You must always be prepared to endure the attacks of God's enemies and the temptation to not follow through on your own call. Christ followed through on his call, even to death on the cross, in order to save the souls of his people. There is so much that you can learn from the temptations of Jesus. Mark said the spirit drove him into the wilderness for the purpose of being tempted by the devil. The spirit was none other than the Holy Spirit. The spirit takes Christ out into the wilderness to prepare him for the task that he has voluntarily accepted. He is now to be tested by Satan. Tested by Satan. Just as Adam was tested in the garden. It's important that you understand this comparison. Adam is called the first man. He failed the test he was given in the Garden of Eden. Jesus has come to us as the second Adam. Here is part of his great humiliation. He is to undergo the same test Adam faced and failed. The one that created Adam must come down and finish the job Adam failed to complete. Christ has come to give to you that which Adam could not give you. What condescension Christ coming from the highest heaven to the role of sacrificial lamb for sinful mankind. This is the very essence of what the incarnation is all about. It's about Christ coming to do for us what we could never do. Is this not a terrible thing for the God-man to go through? To come to face this enemy and have to listen and endure his words. This is a part of his great condescension, luring himself to face these things on our behalf. In the first temptation, Christ was called to prove he was the Son of God. 
it was suggested to him that he could turn stones into bread. What was the purpose of this temptation? It was a wicked attempt to make the last Adam fail as did the first Adam. Herein is another part of the humiliation that Christ willingly submitted unto. Jesus is in the wilderness being tempted in the, his trust of God, the Father, just as Adam was tempted. From Satan's point of view, this was really a, a sinister plot to destroy the confidence of the Son in the Father. Just as he destroyed Adam's confidence in God's word. Could the Father be trusted to sustain Jesus, or did Jesus need to provide for himself? In other words, Satan was suggesting to Jesus that the Father could not be trusted, just as he had suggested to Eve that God's word was not true. While there are similarities in Adam's and Christ's temptations, there are also differences. Nowhere, nowhere in the scripture do we find that the Old Testament Adam went without food for even one hour, much less than 40 days. Jesus, on the other hand, had been 40 days without food and was getting dangerously close to the death. To death. Adam was tempted in the garden surrounded by plenty. God told him he could eat of any tree in the garden except the one in the middle. There were no such provisions made for Jesus. He was tempted in a barren wilderness. Nevertheless, unlike Adam, he endured the temptation. He withstood the temptation with the words, it is written. What he quoted came from Deuteronomy 8.3. This is a passage from Moses as he speaks of God's goodness in the wilderness and how he fed the Israelites with manna from heaven. The gist of Christ's answer is this. Satan you believe that man must have bread to live? Well, that is a false assumption. It is not bread that man must have, but it is the creative, energizing, and sustaining power of God's word that he must have, for without it, man has no life and certainly no well-being. Note, it's the very thing Satan challenged in the garden And the word of God, he challenged that word. He came to, 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 Mo, to, to Noah and to Noah, to Adam and Eve, and challenged the word of God and whether it was true or not. Jesus uses the word in his temptation to defeat that temptation. Christ showed by his response that he held full confidence in the words of God and in God himself. He knew the Father had promised to meet his every need. He placed his trust in that promise and in that promise alone. He didn't deviate. He didn't take the shortcut. The second temptation is a follow-up on the first. It's kind of like he says, oh, you trust in your Father? Okay, then prove it. Throw yourself off the temple. Let's see if he saves you. The devil takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple roof in Jerusalem. Satan says, since you're the son of God, throw yourself down. The idea was that Christ should throw himself from the roof 
and that God would miraculously save him before all the people. The people seeing such a great miracle would instantly believe he was the Messiah. Satan even quotes a passage of scripture from Psalm 9, verses 11 and 12, which declares that the angels of God will protect him from all harm. This goes back to one of the truths about Christianity. Christianity is not a religion of the eye. It is a religion of the ear. It is a religion of faith. Faith comes by hearing and by hearing the word of God. God could have painted the gospel message in the sky if he had wanted to reach men through their eyes. He did not. Instead, he sent Jesus as one of the most insignificant human beings ever. A very real part of the humiliation he underwent as the God-man was that his own creatures would not accept him as their savior. Satan was offering a quick and easy way to end that unbelief. He says, go on, jump. Prove yourself if God will not let you down. This was the same argument he used with Eve in the garden. Jesus does not fall into this trap. He, does that, he knows that presumption is not true faith. Men have a tendency to think the results are the only important things and that the method used to accomplish the results is of no importance whatsoever. The end justifies the means. Jesus knew better. He knew, and his response was from Deuteronomy 6.16, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus was sent from the Father to fulfill the law, and he knew there were no shortcuts. Adam had made this mistake and fell for the idea he could shortcut God's plans by eating of the forbidden fruit. Jesus knows the law, and that is very clear. You must believe and trust in God and in his word alone. That's what salvation is, trusting in Christ and Christ alone. He has done for you what you couldn't do. That's the only way into heaven. He says, I'm the life and the truth, and I'm all out of whack there, but you know what I mean. It is through Christ and Christ alone that we can come to the Father. Adam had made this mistake. He had fell for the idea that he could shortcut God's plan by eating of this forbidden fruit. Jesus knows the law, and that is very clear. You must believe and trust in God and his word. For Jesus to jump would have been a test of God, a test that would have broken the law and would have been seeking a shortcut to the salvation of men. Jesus knew it wouldn't work. Think about this in your own life. We're so good at this game of self of false confidence. We will pray and ask God for good health while we ignore the simple rules for good health. We'll ask God for travel mercies and then we forget to fasten our seatbelts. We'll ask God to save our souls, yet we will ignore the means of grace, such as studying the word, praying, submitting to church membership, sitting under good preaching of the word and proper keeping of the sacraments. It would be like a, a young pastor getting caught coming out of a, an R movie. 
He would explain he was just doing research on the ways of the world. He would then promise that he was praying the whole time that God would protect him from evil. Men are great justifiers of themselves. You must always be on the watch for this deceitful behavior in your own heart. You must learn the proper response is Christ. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Christ in his humiliation of taking on flesh and blood submitted himself to this process of temptation to show how you handle it. He's giving you the pattern. You're tempted, what do you do? Go to the word. The word will lead you through. The devil, having failed in his first two attempts, drops all pretense, and as you might say, he goes for the jugular. He takes Christ up to the mountaintop, shows him all the glory he as the prince of the world controls. He then offers it to Jesus if he will worship him. The purpose of Christ coming into the world was to show that he was the king of kings and lord of lords. Here Satan offers him another shortcut. A way to reveal the title without the horrors of the cross. It is a way to avoid part of the humiliation he agreed to endure. Undergoing all the suffering was necessary if he would save his people. He had to suffer the same temptations that all men face. This was the greatest of all the temptations. For you see Christ struggling with it again in the Garden of Gethsemane as he finally overcomes the last dregs of his earthly nature with this statement. My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Christ answers Satan with words from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 3. He tells him, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. This answer reveals the sharp contrast between Satan and Christ. Christ is the one ever doing God's will. He never avoids the proper means. He is always confident that God's means will always accomplish the right end. Satan, on the other hand, is always trying to find a shortcut, never trusting in God's plan, but always proposing his own. Now, I know you don't have to go very far from this place right here to find churches that have taken shortcuts to what God told them to bring people in. It is turned into an entertainment thing. Christ never said we were to entertain anybody. He said we're to give them the truth. We're to proclaim his truth, not entertain. And it's a great tragedy that we have fallen in, so many have fallen into that shortcut to think they know better than God how to draw people. My friends, I hope you can see how Jesus Christ, by coming into this world and taking on flesh and blood, has humbled himself in a way that is almost incomprehensible to us as mortal men. This little child, this infant held in Mary's arms, came to earth to save his people. He has suffered so much through his birth, life, and temptations. 
It was bad enough to be the creator of the world and have to submit to being the most helpless of all creatures. But then to have to battle such a powerful enemy as Satan. And to do it with nothing. But your wits is a great humbling thing, I think, even for the Son of God. Yet Christ did it. And he did it for you. That you would have to suffer the curse of the law. That you would not have to suffer the curse of the law, which is death. Even though you so richly deserved it. He took your sins upon his shoulders at Calvary's cross and died a horrible death in your place. This, the very God who had created you. My friends, I do not believe there is a greater message of love, a greater message of hope to be found in this world than that of Jesus Christ. He has come from heaven to do for those who will hear his words and believe and trust in their message what they could never do for themselves. He came to win for them salvation, salvation from their sins and freedom from the bondage to Satan. In order to do that, he had to humble himself more than any man could ever imagine. He left his place of glory and honor to come and offer all for you. If you have not looked into your own heart, if you have not seen your sin, then let me call you to do that right now. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is the light that has come into this world. And through that light and that light alone, you can find your own sinfulness. If you will acknowledge your sin and call on his name, he will hear and he will save you from that sinfulness. He will wash it away as far as the east is from the west. But if you see the light and refuse to see your own sin, refuse to acknowledge that sin, then he will overlook you and he will leave you in your sins and you will pay the price for the, those sins with your own life and an eternity under God's awful wrath. Turn to Jesus Christ. Place your hope and your trust in him and in him alone, for there is no other way. He alone can save your soul. Let us pray. Glorious God, Almighty Lord, we come this day with thankful hearts for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. You sent him to the world as your word. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from you, Father, full of grace and truth. He came taking himself, making himself nothing, taking on our very nature, being made in our likeness. He did this to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. He came and lived the perfect life, died the atoning death, and won the resurrection victory. He did this so we could come through him into eternal life. Please, hear our praise that it might bring glory in Christ's name. Amen.